we provided prosthetics for detainees who had amputations so they could stand and walk for the first time. And I was there when they put these on and they were weeping with joy. And one came up to me and asked, why are you doing this for us? We tried to kill you last week. And I said, well, that's what physicians do all over the world. They take care of people no matter what, no matter who they may be. He knew it was more than that. It's what Americans did. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. In this episode, we're privileged to welcome Colonel Edward P. Horvath, Jr., a veteran of the U.S. Army Reserve's Medical Corps. Dr. Horvath has been a physician for over 50 years and has specialized in internal medicine, occupational medicine, and pulmonary disease. During his time in the military, he completed three separate deployments in Iraq. You can learn more about his bio on warnoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear why he was drawn back to the military at the age of 56 and about his clinical and leadership roles during his deployments and what it was like providing care for wartime detainees in Iraq. He also discusses why mentoring the next generation is so important to him and how he fosters these relationships. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today we're privileged to welcome Army veteran Dr. Edward Horvath to Wardox. Ed, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Following graduation from Ohio State University School of Medicine, you trained in internal medicine as well as occupational medicine. What drew you to those specialties initially and what led you to further specialize in preventive medicine and pulmonary diseases? Well, I, I went to medical school with the idea that I'd become Marcus Welby, just a primary care physician, go back to my hometown of Painesville, Ohio. At the end of my career, they put a statue of me in the park. Over the course of my time there, I realized that was simplistic. I still wanted to stay in primary care, and there weren't any residencies at the time in the mid to late 60s in family medicine, med-peds, or anything other than general internal medicine. So I started out there knowing that I really didn't want to go into surgery and uh, finished there, went did an internship at the University of Wisconsin, and I became introduced there to a group of pulmonologists who were doing research and farm-related lung disease, farmer's lung, filler's disease became interested in that. Then I went off to Minneapolis. I decided I wanted to get an MPH, maybe get certified in occupational medicine, which is a subset of preventive medicine. And I did that, came back to Wisconsin, went into a pulmonary fellowship directly, really after internship, which is highly unusual. And that pulled me into pulmonary medicine. So after all this jumble ended, it was really a very eclectic type of training. After five years, I was board certified in internal medicine, preventive medicine slash occupational health, and board eligible in pulmonary, although I never took the boards. Overeducated, to be sure. So a lot of our audience are you know, probably very familiar with internal medicine, preventive medicine, pulmonary. You know, some questions about what does an occupational medicine specialist do? What, what is that all about? Well, I've heard questions like that for as long as I've been in occupational medicine. Occupational medicine is a subspecialty board under the Board of General Preventive Medicine. 
And occupational medicine was one of the most diverse types of practices that I know of in the profession of medicine. Occupational medicine positions range to people like myself who are double-boarded in internal medicine, are largely clinical, to those who do research at universities and toxicology and occupational lung disease. Some set of people in occupational medicine decide to go to the corporate route, and they become corporate medical directors of various companies. Over the course of my lifetime, I was the corporate medical director of Standard Oil Company, which later became BP America, and also the corporate medical director of General Electric Lighting for a few years. So I've had a very different kind of a career. So what about in the military? What would an occupational medicine doc do in the military? Actually, occupational medicine is very important, specialty in the military, particularly I would add in the Navy, because the Navy had a lot of occupational and environmental hazards. Asbestos was a huge problem when I was a young Navy officer in the 70s. Hearing loss is a huge problem in the military. You're always dealing with infectious diseases. So public health and epidemiology are very key. So in occupational medicine, those are the things that people get involved in. And then, of course, there's always a clinical component to occupational medicine, whether it's work-related injuries or just basic sick call. Everybody pitches in to do that. But it's a very important specialty within the military itself. Can you tell us about your pathway to joining the Navy as a Medical Corps officer, and what were your responsibilities for the Navy? Well, it's very simple. I was facing the draft. It was 1967. I was a freshman medical student. I was younger than most of my classmates, and I was single, and I was soon to get an MD. And I realized what was going to happen after that. So I called my dad, who was a decorated combat veteran with the Army from World War II. Asked his opinion. He, he told me something very interesting. He said, well, son, he said, you're less likely to get killed as a Navy doctor than an Army doctor. And not getting killed was in the top of my wish list for that Christmas. So I went down to the Navy recruiter and I signed up and that was it. That's how I got into the Navy. And in the Navy, after years of training, I finally served two full years on active duty, all stateside. I had three major accomplishments. One was to completely redesign, reformulate, and reinitiate the Navy's asbestos medical surveillance program, which later became the OSHA medical surveillance program. We had to do a study on the toxic effects of torpedo fuel, auto fuel too, which is a very serious problem. Did that, showed that it wasn't as bad as they thought, saved that weapon system and allowed it to be used safely. And then I developed the first national spirometry lung function training course nationwide that became the NIOSH course. So that was a very productive two years for me. So then after a 26-year break in service, you decided to return to military medicine following the attacks of 9-11 and someone inspired by your sons who joined the Navy following the 9-11 attacks. Tell us a little bit about that decision and why you chose the Army instead of the Navy, knowing that you're more likely to die as an Army doc than a Navy. <laughs> I forgot about that already, but um, everybody had a, a flush of patriotism after 9-11, of course. A lot of people joined the military, and my sons were, were in, of that age and came to me and asked what they should do, and I told them we were at war again, and it was their turn. And that even though there was no draft, I expected them to defend their country. So they ran off and joined the Navy at my advice. That's all I knew. And then I decided one day to go back in. They need physicians. Uh, it was sort of unfinished business to me. I never really got to Vietnam and I felt like I should have gone. I never had that opportunity. So I decided to go back in the military for all these complex interactive reasons. The Navy rejected me. 
they medically DQ'd me because I had a neck injury in my early 30s and had to have a fusion at two levels. I was actually in a wheelchair for a while, but I completely recovered. And it was really quite disturbing because a Navy admiral who was an orthopedic surgeon in this area, a reservist, examined me, looked over the records and said I was perfectly physically capable of being in the Navy in war and peace. They didn't pay any attention to him. This went on for eight months. And my barber, who was a Vietnam veteran, said, Ed, why don't you just call the Army? I first balked at the idea, but I did. And within eight weeks, I was standing in my office, taking the oath of office for the second time in my life as a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. So you deployed to Iraq in 2005 at the age of 59. Did you feel prepared to do what was expected from you downrange? I don't think anyone can really feel prepared going off to a war for the first time, whether you're 59 or 29 or 39. I didn't really know quite what was expected of me. I trusted the training they gave me. I was told that I was to be Saddam Hussein's personal physician. Well, I didn't want to be Saddam Hussein's personal physician, thinking that might ruin my reputation. But I had no choice about it. So I showed up at Applegrave Prison Hospital on Christmas Day or two days after Christmas Day, 2005. And they told me to start looking through his medical records. He was a prisoner at the time and was on trial in Baghdad. And my concern was that someone was going to drive a, a car bomb into the courtroom to kill him and I would be collateral damage. Well, I saw him a couple times at a distance. Before I could become his physician, they sent me to Camp Buka in the South, which was another detention facility. Was I prepared? I had to learn on the fly. I wanted to do clinical work. I did administrative work. I was actually a medical detective for a while investigating a fatal accident. So I'm not sure how you prepare for any of those things. I guess the best preparation I had was my medical background and training. So you mentioned that you were involved with a detainee mission in OAF. What were the challenges associated with providing care for the detainees? And are there any particular lessons that you want to share with us? The the initial problem was psychological and moral. At first, I resented them because they were the enemy, and I was well aware of what some of them had done had killed American soldiers and maybe would kill me the following week. But being a professional and a physician, I cared for them as I would any patient. Then as I got to know some of them, I realized that many of them were just boys. They were boys who were bullied, bribed, cajoled, threatened to do things. They were just boys. And so I gradually began to feel like they were the neighbor's kids. They were kids like my kids, doing what they were told. And we cared for them. They, they became very appreciative, most of them. One of the aspects of it initially was fear. I was always fearful, and everyone else was too, that one of them was going to have an explosive device when they came in the, the ER. But we would warn them for that. We provided prosthetics for detainees who had amputations so they could stand and walk for the first time. And I was there when they put these on, and they were weeping with joy. And one came up to me and asked, why are you doing this for us? We tried to kill you last week. And I said, well, that's what physicians do all over the world. They take care of people no matter what, no matter who they may be. He knew it was more than that. It's what Americans do. We forgive our enemies, rebuild Japan and Germany. We take care of terrorists when they're injured. We forgive our enemies and care for everyone. And I could see in some of these people, in their faces and expressions and speech, their heart and minds were turning. We were not the horrible people that they had been told would be. Tell us uh, some memorable experiences from that first deployment. 
Well, being at Abu Ghraib was surreal. It was the worst place in all the world. I'd never been at a facility like this. It looked like Berlin, 1945. It was completely bombed out, rubble everywhere. There were 5,000 detainees in prison camps. I stayed in a jail cell because they had no other place to put me. I didn't do anything wrong, and I got wound up in a jail cell. It, it was just a very bad place. And then we got rocketed and mortared every day. You had to keep your body armor on and your Kevlar. Whenever you went outside, even if it was to, to the latrine, and it was distressing to see 242 kids there, ranging in age from 10 to 17, separated from the other people, of course, because they're minors. And I, just, I took care of these kids, and they looked like the boys that I took care of when I was back in the States. They reminded me of my own children when they were that age. And it was a very disheartening experience to see this. Now, you came there after that the Abu Ghraib controversies of, of prisoner abuse. Did you notice any problems with how the, the prisoners were treated when you were there? No. I mean, the, we gave them the best possible care under the circumstances. I mean, it was not the best equipped facility, but we did, we did medical care. We took care of them as best we could. Yeah, detainee ops at that point in time of the war was a very high priority. So much so that I missed getting some very good pictures that would have been of educational value on my return home. They grabbed my camera. They wouldn't let me take any pictures of any detainees for any reason. You're put in a position as a internal medicine, occupational medicine, trained physician, been in private practice for a while, and probably don't see things like massive bleeding, the need to intubate patients, putting in chest tubes in your normal civilian practice. How did you psychologically prepare and how did you physically prepare to do that if you were called upon, if one of those mortars hit somebody or someone was shot and was bleeding? Well, I had staffed the emergency room at the VA hospital for many years. And although we didn't see a great deal of trauma there, there were true emergencies. And I think the first thing you learn in an ER is not to lose your head. Think it through. You have to act quickly. Your training takes over. I was certified in advanced cardiac life support. And I knew the second time I went there, I was going to be staffing an emergency room. So the Army, who provided us some very relevant training, had us take advanced trauma life support and other burn training, burn course. We practiced on cadavers, cut, doing cut downs, inserting chest tubes. We practiced on live animals, too, that were anesthetized. But we, we were clearly not experts at doing these things. But I felt confident that if I had to do it, I could do it. And in every ER, there was at least one or two ER physicians who did these things more frequently. We also had anesthesiologists and certified registered nurse anesthetists to do some of this stuff for us. So I felt prepared within the context of this, this multidisciplinary integrated team. Following that first deployment, you chose to remain in the U.S. Army Reserves. What kept you in the service? Well, I thought I had signed up until I was 62, and I guess I did. And there really wasn't any thought that I was going to leave prematurely. I also, when I left, I felt that I could have done more. I could have stayed longer. The war was still going on. They still needed physicians. The image of, of dead and injured children was in my mind, so I decided to volunteer to go back a second time in 2007. I actually got in theater in January 2008. And needless to say, not much had changed, sadly. But I was now staffing the ER instead of driving right around the countryside in convoys, which was probably the most dangerous thing you could do there. 
So tell us a little bit about that deployment in 2008. You said that things really hadn't changed too much, but your responsibilities were a little bit different. You weren't involved in a detainee mission. Tell us about any particular memories that you have from that 2007 deployment. Well, we were in Sulaidin province, and that was the last redoubt of Al-Qaeda toward the end of the surge. And there were still combat operations going on just a couple miles away. And so we got a lot of casualties medevac then. And so there were mass casualty events. I took care of a young girl who was probably 14 or 15 years old. She was, got caught in a firefight nearby Tikrit when Al-Qaeda's chief bomb maker was discovered and British SAS went in there. They wheeled her into the emergency room and it was chaos. I mean, the, the floor was so wet with blood, I almost slipped and fell when I ran in there. And I saw this young girl, I could just see her face. And so the routine is get all the clothes off, find the holes, plug the holes, keep the person alive with blood or whatever you need to do in time to take them to surgery. When I took off the army blanket that covered her, I saw something that I'd never seen before. And I don't think I ever want to see again. Her left leg was severed at the groin and laying across her chest. And they managed somehow to get a tourniquet on what was left of her leg, but she was hypotensive, acidotic, hypothermic, lethal triad. She was going to die. We kept pumping blood in her and I couldn't bring her blood pressure up. Then I realized that she was bleeding somewhere else. We rolled her over. She was bleeding from an, a small arterial on the backside of her amputation. Got a second tourniquet on that. She arrested, resuscitated her. She went to surgery and she eventually wound up being discharged from the hospital. But I often wondered what happened to her as I did for many of the Iraqis I cared for. She was a beautiful young woman with one leg. What kind of future would she have? And that was one of the more shocking things I'd ever seen in my life in 50 years of medicine. So following that 2008 deployment, they said, hey, you're going to come back and be the, the task force deputy commander and chief of clinical services at a combat support hospital near Tikrit. Tell us about that change in responsibilities and, and any particular stories from that deployment that are memorable. Well, I, when I left in 2008, I was really not in a good way. I had seen too much, things I'd never seen in my life. I think I had some PTSD. I was depressed and I thought, this is it. I, I went twice. I don't want to do this again. Well, it turned out that my unit, a reserve combat support hospital at 256 in Brexville, Ohio, got the call to be one of the last two combat support hospitals to be in Iraq. And I got called into the commander's office and he said, Ed, I know you've been twice and I hate to ask you, but I'm asking, would you come with us? We can't do this without you. And so I thought about it and I said, yes. And then I went home to a very angry wife when she found out, gradually settled down over the idea and I went, but it was a year long deployment. And I was in a command position there, which very different responsibilities from what I had had before. We had 24,000 troops in the northern half of Iraq and what was now called Operation New Dawn, begging the question, was there an Operation Old Dawn and how did I miss it? But I had the northern half of Iraq, probably 80,000 square miles with facilities scattered all about the countryside. So I was in all sorts of air conveyances frequently. It was basically keeping these hospitals functioning under the most adverse circumstances. We had Physicians leave every three months, the 90-day rotators. 
I wound up doing 100 officer evaluation reports. They started to sound a lot alike toward the end. We had blood supply, which was critical. That had to be attended to. We had the usual people problems. It was a very difficult job. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how to withdraw from a country, how to have a responsible drawdown of forces. And I got to look at what happened in Afghanistan in real time. And I was appalled by what I saw because I did it. And if I could do it as a physician, anybody could do it. Well, I remember I was I was deployed in Balad at the Air Force Hospital there in late 2010, you know, going into 2011. And I remember all of the downsizing discussions and you know all of that effort that was put into making that transition out of active combat support hospitals everywhere to basically a very, very small footprint. So what leadership lessons specifically did you get out of that? And you're a physician kind of telling them how to do it. How did that come across to the line officers that were also trying to figure out how to get combat units out of Iraq as well? Well, by that time in the deployment, I was well known throughout at least the northern half of Iraq. And my opinion was respected, not just as a physician, but as a military officer, as a colonel. And they listened to me. And basically, we came to an an understanding how this was going to be done so that I could move my medical forces with their troops, covering for them if something bad happened. And it was very difficult to do. It was just basically doing your homework, common sense, treating people with respect. And it got done. And there were some attacks during that, that time, but we learned something. And what we learned was you never put out that you're going to leave on Wednesday and you leave on Wednesday because that's when you're going to get attacked. You put out you're going to leave on Wednesday, but you actually leave on Monday. And that we did that along the Syrian border. I got up there and I realized we were just just flapping out in the breeze in the middle of no place with doctors, nurses, and some small arms fire. I called, called Baghdad. I called the brigade. And I said, we have to get out of here now. Do I have permission to leave? And they basically said, Carla, you're the commander on the ground. You make the decision. We trust your judgment. So what I made was a a military decision, not a medical one. We got out of there. And I I really wish we had been there to watch the insurgents pour into the slow forward surgical team and find boxes of Band-Aids and and, soft wraps and things like that and nothing else. I would have loved to have seen the look on their faces. But we got out of there alive. And that was how the entire process went until we left. So what did you learn about yourself during your deployments? I learned that I was stronger and more capable than I thought I was. I think all of us in medicine and in professions and jobs that require a great deal of education and effort, we have the imposter syndrome. Sometimes we don't feel like we belong, that they should have picked someone else. And I disabused myself of that feeling early on. I also realized that because I knew how to think and act, as a physician, I was trained how to think and act. I had a natural leadership ability and I had very effective communication skills. And those were the two things that I knew that I had. And I employed those along with my medical knowledge to do the job. What would you say was the most challenging or maybe the most interesting clinical case that you encountered 
for a patient that you cared for or your unit cared for in any of your deployments? I know you mentioned the, the girl with the amputation. Were there any other clinical cases that just stand out as remarkable to you? There were diseases that you, you see here, like hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, that you wouldn't expect to see in young Marines, yet they happen. But, but those things occur. The types of things that I had in mind for this question were, how many of us have seen echinococcosis, dog tape burn cysts? I had a patient with, with that. He had a huge abdomen, and he had an incision in his abdomen. I don't know who made it. We got there. And these cysts were pouring out of this incision. And the surgeon called me. He said, Colonel Orbeth, get here right away. There's something coming out of this man's body. And all I could think of was the alien movie. <laughs> so I grabbed my handgun. But I, I couldn't believe what it was. I knew there were cysts. And we finally figured it out. And his entire abdomen was filled with cysts of various sizes, ranging from the size of grapes to the size of baseballs. And what had happened is a boy, he had obviously eaten some contaminated food, contaminated by dog feces, wound up with a big cyst in his liver. They tried to remove it in Iraq. It ruptured and seeded his entire abdominal cavity with these parasites, which just kept forming new cysts year after year after year. So we, we put him on an antiparasitic agent, and I don't know what ever happened to him. And that was very frustrating to me because I never really learned, I never stayed long enough to find out what happened to these, any of these odd cases that I diagnosed and cared for. The other, the other disease you don't see in the U.S. is, is leishmaniasis, or leishmaniasis, however you wish to pronounce it. But we had cases there that were not soldiers. Soldiers would be sent back to the U.S. for treatment. And one of the infectious disease specialists that I work with, he said, well, you know, you need to do a liposomal amphotericin B. And I said, well, what is that? He said, well, it's not your father's amphotericin B. It's much more effective. So we treated this fellow, an Iraqi, with, with this new amphotericin B product. And it actually, it actually cleared up the rash. I'd never seen anything like it before. There are other cases, but these are two, two that really stick out in my mind. So not many individuals deploy to a war zone in their 50s and 60s. Do you have any lingering mental or physical effects from these experiences? Well, I hurt my back when I was there and I tore a ligament in my elbow. Those are accidents. I think the worst thing that happened to me was I've had a history of, of depressive disorder since childhood. And I hadn't had an episode for 30 years, but it took a rack to bring it back. And I was very depressed. Fortunately, there was a very good army psychiatrist there. And I knew they weren't going to send me home. I knew I had to get well. So he put me on simple antidepressive bupropion. And within two weeks, I was fine. And I stayed and finished the, uh, the entire deployment. I came home with, you know, usual nightmares and things of that nature, mild PTSD symptoms. To this day, I still have an exaggerated startle response. I hear something falling anywhere or a sound I don't recognize. I roll around immediately to look and it's not volitional. It's a reflex. I will not drive down the road with cars next to me. My wife just is beside herself at times because I will speed up or maneuver the vehicle to get away from being close to other cars because that was something you didn't do in Iraq. And I've never lost that fear even though I'm not there anymore. So that was a, that was a bit 
basically, I think I, I came out of that reasonably unscathed. By the way, I was able to keep up with all the younger soldiers. I ran with them, did the PT test. That was a while ago. I don't think I could do it now at age 76, but I could do it then. So we talked to a lot of guests who saw things in deployment that a lot of people don't see in, in a lifetime. And, and those things can really impact your mental health. And one of the things we like to ask about is how did you think that the military health system really did in, in addressing what was happening in your life? Did you feel like you were cared for appropriately or is there things that the military health system could do better for people with compassion fatigue or PTSD, depression, whatever stems from those deployments where they experienced some really horrific things? I think they did an excellent job given the circumstances. I mean, you can't have a Cleveland Clinic or a Mayo Clinic in the middle of the desert. And everyone knew that. So they had some really superb physicians, both full-time military physicians and reservists. By the way, during my second deployment there, I saw a statistic that 70% of the physicians providing care in combat zones were reservists. And a lot of reservist physicians volunteered and many other people, not quite as old as I was, but fairly old, mature, volunteered to go. And they brought with them the expertise from their civilian jobs to the military. So I, I really can't complain. These combat support hospitals were well-staffed with the proper equipment, proper pharmaceuticals, blood supplies, x-rays, whatever you needed was there. Well, the medical personnel, both active duty and reserve, nurses, medics, doctors, were all superbly trained were all compassionate, they were focused and very dedicated to what they did. I had very little experience with military medical facilities before I retired and now I go to the VA. I was at Camp Zama in Japan providing care there at a family medicine clinic and a couple of other places like that for two week summer rotations. And they were fine. I mean, the worst thing that I encountered was the medical records, the electronic medical record was really not good. Say it isn't so. No, yeah. Well, I, I finally got one of the consultants who had been an army colonel had been involved in this. And I said, I want to tell you something and you tell me that it's true or not true. You guys had ready access to the VA CPRS electronic medical, which is a very good medical record. And you decided not to do it because somebody got $250 million and was going to do this on their own and get a star. Tell me I'm wrong. He said, how did you know that? I said, it's obvious. That's exactly what happened. And so you had a medical record system that was clumsy, difficult to navigate, where the inpatient and outpatient records didn't talk to each other. Is there something that the military could do to improve the experience and preparation of physicians in the reserves? I think that they did a very good job for the most part. Clearly, they're taking advantage of our day jobs, what we do every day in clinics and hospitals where we practice as civilians. They do their best to spin us up, get us ready for the combat environment. They actually had to do less training and it was what they did was more effective because by the time you got toward the end of the war, almost everyone had been deployed at least once and in my case, two times. So I knew what, what was going to happen and I knew what I needed to know. Some of the training was a little silly, I thought. I didn't really need to know how to assemble and disassemble all the Army's machine guns, but I learned. 
I really didn't need to know how to throw grenades. And I'm glad they gave me a dummy grenade because I'd have blown myself up. And they even trained us in how to clear buildings. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so it was actually kind of fun, but obviously it was unnecessary. The training we needed to be ready for the deployment to provide medical care we got from our civilian jobs in the Army filled in the gaps of what you needed to know to function in a combat environment. What advice would you give to younger military physicians on the best way to prepare for a deployment to a war zone? I think you need to take advantage of all your training opportunities that the military offers. You have to ask yourself, if you, especially if you're volunteering, ask yourself why you're doing this. Because if you don't know why you're doing it, it's a question that's going to come up in your mind when you're crouched in a bunker waiting for mortar to blow up outside the door. You need to know why you're doing it. And you need to prepare your spouse and children. Rely on supportive family and friends. I had a much easier time of this than most people do. My kids were all grown and gone. My two boys were in the military and I wound up in the same war zone with one of them at, on two occasions. My daughter's a physician. She was in her practice. My wife was a teacher. She is a military brand, so she understood this. But one thing I didn't do that I regret is I didn't know how much strain she was under from having her husband and two sons in war. And I paid a price for that when I got home. And I've apologized many times. I think I've been forgiven. But you don't think of it when you're there. You think of not getting killed. You think of not failing, doing your jobs. And your prior life just seems like a dream. It didn't really happen. It's, it's from another universe. And then when you get home, there it is. You haven't thought really about how this is affecting your spouse. So apart from preparing from a medical standpoint, you need to prepare yourself and your family for this event. We had an individual reach out to us and it's an individual that, that you had mentored. And he said, boy, you guys got to get Ed Horvath on, on the show. He's got a great story and he, you know, he's a really great ambassador. And it just kind of made me think about what is your philosophy as far as the importance of mentoring the younger generation and how do you do it? And what are the keys to success? I think it's, it's critically important, especially with so many young people coming from broken families. And I'm not criticizing people who get divorced. I understand how that happens. Some young men, especially young men, never had a father in their lives. And they don't know what a man is supposed to be like. I just kind of walked into this gradually over time. And, and one of the reasons that I decided to take some young men, with many, a couple of them were just boys when I started working with them under my wing is that when I was a youngster, I went through the usual teenage angst and difficulties and problems. And during medical school and internship, very stressful time, there were difficult decisions to make, difficult circumstances to navigate. And I found over time that someone Maybe someone I didn't even know prior to the day they introduced themselves to me came out of the woodwork, literally took my hand and walked me through the problem, walked me through the decision. And then many of them just disappeared from my life. They just came for a reason. Some stayed for a season, maybe longer. And a handful of them stayed for a lifetime and became a lifelong friend. And I resolved that when I was in the position to do that for young people, I would. And I probably have done this for 15 young people over the last 20 years. 
two or three of them are orphans from adopted from European countries. One is a, a fatherless African-American kid who's in the military right now in Korea doing very well. Uh, others I got working with them when they were in prison for various things. And I spent a lot of time visiting prisons, although nothing really could match to have, have a grave. They're not pleasant places to be. But I, I'm reaching a point now in my life when I still work with a handful of them virtually on a weekly basis. But I realize that I can't continue doing this. But I wish more people would. I really do. You recently published a book entitled Good Medicine, Hard Times, Memoir of a Combat Physician in Iraq. What inspired you to complete that project and what do you hope readers take away from reading it? Well, when I gave this presentation repeatedly over the years, people would come up to me and say, you should write this down. You have a unique human perspective on the war. And I thought, sure, sure. I'm, I'm in the Army Reserve. I've got a full-time day job. I don't have time for this. Well, after I was summarily retired out of the military, I was told at age 68 that I was too old, so they kicked me out. I was giving a presentation at the School of Public Health in Washington, D.C., literally down the street from the White House. And these are all graduate students. And after the presentation was done, a young woman came up to me and she was in tears. And I thought I had offended her in some way by showing, you know, very graphic pictures. How can I help you? I asked. And she said, I want to be like you. It struck me and I realized that maybe just maybe I had a story that would resonate with young people and would encourage some of them who are going into medicine to look at the military as a sidelight to that or part of their career, either as full-time military or as reservists. And so I decided to sit down four years ago and write this book. Don't ever write a memoir, I'm just warning you. It, it, was, it de devoured my life for four years, and my wife has already told me that if I start writing another book, she's leaving. And I don't blame her, she did. But I really wrote it largely to help convince selected young people to do what I did. Not that I'm a hero, I'm not. But I can't do what I did anymore. I just can't. I'm too old. Nobody wants me to do it. So someone has to take our places. And I've had a number of young people contact me and ask how, how, to, do, how to go about this. So I will never know, in all likelihood, how many young people went into military medicine because they read my book. But I know there'll be some, and that's the consolation I take from all the effort and time I put into it. So you mentioned that you have two sons and a daughter. Let's say in 100 years, your future family, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, somehow find this podcast. What would you want them to hear from you about your legacy and your time in military medicine and, and what it meant to you? I think I liked him to know that I had a mission in life, and I found out about that mission over time, and I completed that mission. And that involved both medicine and the military, practicing medicine where no one else, very few other people were willing to go at the risk of my own life. And I didn't sit around asking what I should have done or could have done. I did it. And I'm far from a perfect human being, but I did leave and have led a meaningful life. And I, I hope that if they get no other message out of it, that's what they would get, that there is such a thing as a meaningful life. And at the end of the day, it's not how much money you have and how many possessions you have. It's what you've done with the talents you've been given 
and the people around you, your family and friends. That's all that matters at the end. We've been speaking with Army Colonel Dr. Edward Horvath on Wardock's podcast. Ed, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.